All right, I'll read the passage for us. This comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The Bible is filled with all different kinds of passages, and they have weird effects on every listener. Sometimes you read something in the Bible, and it'll grab your heart, and you go... This is exactly the word that I've been waiting for. Sometimes you read a passage that's filled with all these strange words and metaphors. You go, oh, this is confusing. I don't know really what it's trying to say. And then you have passages like this that, at least for me, kind of go in one ear and out the other. And I read this over and over again, but nothing was sticking for the first couple times. When I thought, why this is the case, what is it about this passage that makes it kind of go in and come out? I think it's because it produces two contrasting reactions that collide into each other and like waves kind of cancel each other out. The first reaction is there's a familiarity to it. We've all heard these verses before. And even the theme of it is stuff we've heard pretty much everywhere we go in our life. When you go to school, they tell you, do not judge a book by its cover. Make sure you read it. Make sure you're open to people. Make sure you're tolerant. Make sure you do not judge people. And this is the same message that we pretty much heard in the church. We hear Samuel talking to David through God saying he doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. We know that we're supposed to love people unconditionally. And so when we read these verses, we go, yeah, 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 I got it. Don't judge. No problem. But the more that you think about it, there's something frustrating about these verses. Jesus says, do not judge. But when you think about how the world works, you kind of say to yourself, that's not possible. From an evolutionary point of view, we are hardwired to judge things. Our ancient ancestors who were able to look on the horizon, see something dangerous, correctly label it dangerous, were able to survive better than those who just kind of stood there and let the animal eat them. And so they're able to pass these traits on to other people. And therefore, we have this mechanism that's built in that says, danger, 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 I got to go the other way. And even now, social and cognitive psychologists have confirmed, looking at brain anatomy, that this is what we do. We look at the world, we take in everything that we can from our senses, and we put them into little boxes, and then we label those boxes. This person is good. That person is bad. This type of experience is pleasurable. This one is painful. This thing is fun. This thing is boring. We take insight in from the world, and we put it into little boxes, And our experience confirms that this is the case. I've been very judgmental since I was a little kid. And when you think about what you used to use to judge people, when you're in high school, it was kind of like your preferences. Are you team Adidas, team Nike? Are you team Coke, team Pepsi? Do you like the Phillies or do you like nobody? (laughs) Do you like uh, Guile? 
in Street Fighter 2, or do you like Ryu or Ken? If you like Guile, then you're a patient person because you've got to hold back for two seconds. If you're Ken, you can do it really quick. So you look at what people like, and then you make a judgment about them, and you go, can I be friends with this person? As you get older, you move away from preferences because you go, oh, that's silly. And then you move to something better, which is pedigree. Oh, where'd you go to school? Where do you work? Where are you from? Who's your family? What town did you grow up in? And then you take this picture of that person, you go, who is this person to me? Can I get something from them? Are they friendly? What is the future of our relationship going to look like based off of pedigree? And I thought that as I got older, this judgmental side of me would kind of get squashed down. But if I'm being honest, I am more judgmental now than I've ever been in my entire life. And one of the spots where I'm the most judgmental has to be at a kid's playground when I'm observing other parents. There's this playground by the Hudson River that has a manual carousel. Kids sit on these 10 horses and it's powered by parents. The parents have to take turns running around the 20 foot circle, pushing this thing and they let go and it spins like a quarter of a revolution more. And the kids are like, yay, yay, yay. But there's no mechanism to make this thing better. So 10 kids are sitting on it and the parents are sitting around on the benches and they kind of like avoid making eye contact. But at some point you go, all right, I'll do it. So you take turns, you spin this thing, you spin this thing, your kids go, yay, yay, yay. And as we're doing this, I notice this one kid keeps trying to look at his parents. But the parents are having a nice coffee, they're sitting down, they're talking to each other, they're ignoring their kid. The kid's like, mom, dad, can you push? And they're just sitting there. And I judge them. And I condemn them. And I said, these guys are awful. How can they not help their kid? And eventually I was like, Arlo, we're leaving because there's some freeloaders on this ride. We cannot keep doing this. I thought the older I got, I would get less judgmental. But the reality is we get more judgmental. And I think as we go through life, we've also probably experienced people judging us. And not even judging us, but misjudging us. I had this friend in college. He's a Korean guy dating a Chinese girl. And he was going to meet their parents for the first time, try and build a relationship, and eventually ask, can I marry your daughter? So he's going there for dinner. He gets dressed up. He gets in his car, drives out to the suburbs in Philadelphia, and gets lost and ends up knocking on the wrong door. Dinner time, dressed up in a suit, Korean guy, knocks on a door. The guy opens the door, looks at his face, looks at his watch, and then yells up to his wife, hey, honey, did we order Chinese food? Right? So not only was he judged, he was misjudged. And then you become aware. The world does not see us the way that we see ourselves. We think we're great. But the world probably doesn't see us in that way. And the more you think about it, even these wrong judgments have the ability to control the way that you act, control the way that you see yourself, control the way that you experience the world. Jen's pregnant. We're expecting a a child. Second child. And... um, you can tell I was um, stressed out when I first heard about this. And the way that I prepare is I like to read. So I'm reading this book called Siblings Without Rivalries because I know there's going to be a new dynamic in the house. And one of the most subtle but important things we do as families grow is we assign roles to each member of the family. And you don't have to have kids to experience this. If you're a part of a family, you're probably assigned a role. Oh, this guy is athletic and this child is artistic. This one is free-spirited, but that one is responsible. This one is musical, and this one is not. (laughs) 
And whatever the role that you're assigned is, it has the ability to kind of stick in your mind and follow you wherever you go. So if you were the responsible one growing up, guess what? When your parents get older, everyone's going to look at you to be the one to take care of them. There's a story about this older brother who was pretty weak and he was pretty gangly. And he had a younger brother who was, you know, five or six years younger, but built like a tank. He was super strong. And the older brother knew this. But in order to overcompensate, he kept calling his younger brother, built like a tank, a weakling. And he kept saying, you're so weak. I'm so much stronger than you. Yeah, because you're older, but not because you're actually stronger. And the strange thing that happened is this younger brother grew up thinking that he was weak his entire life. Not because he was actually weak, but because somebody put this judgment on him that said, hey, you're not as strong as you think you are. Judgment has the ability to shape the way that we experience the world. And as we go through life, we realize judgment is everywhere around us. And when we read this passage and Jesus says, do not judge, there's a part of us that goes, not possible. We judge everywhere that we go. So when we hear these verses, first we go, yeah, 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 I've heard it, familiar. But then we think about it, we go, that's not even possible in the first place. Let's move on and talk about something else. But as we get closer to the original context, we find that these verses are neither familiar nor impossible, but there's something very surprising about what Jesus is saying, and there's also something very inspiring about what he's saying. So let's take a minute, let's pray, and then we'll talk about what he says. God, we thank you so much for giving us this time to pause, to hear from you, to stop all of the judging that's going on in our mind, to stop all the craziness and the busyness that's going on in our mind, and allow you to speak to us. And not just speak to us as people in our own little pods, but people who are part of a body, part of a home, part of a family. And you speak to us because you have something in store for us. You want us to do something. You want us to experience something. And I pray that as we speak, as we listen, as we hear, as we worship today, you would show us what that is so that we can be faithful, not just as individuals, but as a church. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I made the claim that there's something very surprising about what Jesus is saying here. Luke chapter 6 is where Jesus picks his disciples. He prays on a mountain and picks 12 of them and says, you are the 12. Then he gathers all of his disciples together and he gives them this speech. And he says, this is what you are going to be about. This is what your values are going to be. This is how you will conduct yourself in this world. And it's not implausible to think that when the disciples are gathered there, one of the things they were probably expecting was that they would become judges on Jesus' behalf. If you look throughout Israelite history, that's always been the case. Moses, in the desert, millions of people, family squabbles, and he sets himself up as a judge to hear the different disputes and say, okay, give this person the land, not that person. It gets so bad for Moses that when his father-in-law Jethro comes to visit, he goes, Moses, this is all wrong. You're one man, there's a million people, set up other judges, call out leaders from the different tribes, and they will judge their families. God's representatives on earth have always been his judges. If you look at the prophets, especially someone like Jeremiah or Isaiah, they call out judgment on the nation of Israel for idolatry, for unfaithfulness, for the way that they treat the poor. And again, the prophet is God's representative, and he pronounces judgment. And as you get close to the New Testament times, you see the same thing, the Pharisees, saw themselves as expert in the law. You have a question about what to do on the Sabbath, how much offering to give, how you should treat a dead body. Go to the Pharisees, and they saw themselves very much so as God's judges on earth. 
So Jesus had gathered together all of his disciples. He said, you're going to follow me. You're going to do everything that I tell you to do. And they were probably expecting him to say, and now you will judge the people who come before you. If they've done something wrong, you tell them you've done something wrong. But Jesus doesn't say that. In verse 37, he says, do not judge. Do not condemn. And they were probably like, wait a minute. I thought I was going to be a referee. I thought I was going to call the game that was in front of me. But he says, no, you're not going to call the game. You're going to play in the game and you're going to get in there. So the disciples would have been surprised by what Jesus had told them. You are not to judge. You're supposed to withhold judgment. But they also would have been inspired by what they had heard about why he told them you shouldn't judge other people. And the first thing he tells them is you are not good at it. If you look in verse 39, he calls them blind men. In verse 41, he calls them hypocrites and says, you have a log in your eye. And he's saying the reason you guys shouldn't judge is because there's something flawed in the way that you see the world. You only focus on what's wrong with other people, but you forget to turn that same critical eye towards yourself. And as you raise kids, you know that this is true because you'll raise your kid. They'll start growing up. They get a little attitude to them. And you where did this kid get this attitude? And then your spouse will give you a look like from you. Right? And you go, oh. And you only tend to notice the things in other people that you really don't like about yourself. And Jesus is on to something very profound here. We use judgment as a way to avoid dealing with our own sins. But he's saying that's ridiculous. If you can't even deal with your own sins, how are you going to deal with other people's sin? It's like having a financial advisor who's broke, a bald barber, although I guess that's okay. Uh, having a dentist with bad teeth, whatever the case may be. This guy's supposed to be an expert in that thing, but he can't even get it together in his own life. Why should I follow him? And Jesus is saying, you guys are not going to be good judges until you learn how to deal with your own stuff. But there's a more profound reason, and that comes in verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his master, and a student is not above his teacher. Around the time Jesus was born, there was great messianic expectation. The prophets had promised, somebody's going to come who's going to set you free. And it had been 400 years since the people had heard from a prophet. And in that time, they built up all these expectations of who that person would be and what they would be like. They thought he would be a military leader to overthrow the Romans. They thought that he would come with powerful signs to show them that Israel is more powerful than anybody else in the world. But more than that, they thought... Somebody was going to come and judge all the people that had done wrong to Israel. And not only did Pharisees think this, not only did Sadducees or Essenes think this, even the people Jesus approved of thought this. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was the forerunner. He was supposed to make straight a path in the desert. And when you hear what he has to say, he goes, I baptize you with water, but someone's coming after me is going to baptize you with fire and with Holy Spirit. And when you look, the axe is already at the tree and he's going to cut down every tree that does not bear good fruit. Even John the Baptist thought, after I baptize the people, Jesus is going to come with a flamethrower and destroy the people who are evil. But he doesn't do that. He comes, he starts healing people, starts talking to prostitutes, starts talking to tax collectors. And John is so confused by this that he sends disciples to Jesus and say, are you really the one we were waiting for or should we send another? Everybody was expecting that Jesus would come immediately with judgment, but he doesn't. One of the worst feelings about living in New York is you're late. You're trying to get into the subway station. You're running down the stairs. As soon as you get on the platform, the train doors close and it pulls away. You look up at the sign and you see next train 20 minutes. If you had just gotten there four seconds earlier, you would have saved yourself 20 minutes. 
In the same token, one of the best feelings in the world is you're late, you're running down the stairs, you make eye contact with somebody on the train. They see that you're about to make it and boom, they stick out their arm in the door and they hold it open so that you can come in. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us, right? The train of judgment is supposed to leave, but he says, no, not yet. He sticks open his arm and he says, wait, wait, wait. These people got to get in. Now, what's surprising about this move is it's not just that he stops judgment and initiates a time of mercy. It's who he lets into the train. He lets in prostitutes. He lets in tax collectors. He lets in people who are addicted to drugs. He lets in people who have murdered Christians in their past, like Apostle Paul. He lets in all the worst people that we could have possibly thought of. And he says, no, 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 no. Let them in. Let them in. They got to come in. And it's strange because this is not who we would expect him to let in. We thought he'd let in people who looked like us. When we got in, we were like, yeah, of course we got in. Come on. Come on. <laughs> we're good people. But those guys, no. But that's not what he's like. But it's important to remember that when he let us in on that train, at a spiritual level, we were those people. We were people who were low. We were people who were lost. We were people who didn't have our lives together. And when the world looked at us, they were right to judge us as people who did not know what they were doing or where they were going. Paul puts it the best, probably in 1 Corinthians. He says, when you were saved, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The disciples heard the phrase, do not judge, and they asked, why? And Jesus says, you're not supposed to be above your teacher. He does not judge, therefore we do not judge. And he inspires us with the example that he sets. But it's important to make a quick note. He doesn't inspire this by saying, you know what, sin? Nah, not a big deal. Uh, They did something wrong, I forget it. Nobody takes sin more seriously than Jesus does. He dies on the cross for it. But he knows that he's going to die on the cross for it. And because of that, sin is not the end of the story. There's forgiveness. There's grace. So he's able to look at someone, judge them correctly, say, yeah, you've got sin in your life, but I have more grace. I have more mercy. And until you know that part of the story, it's improper for us to judge other people. We can't look at someone and say, this is who you are. This is who you will always be. As long as Christ is out there, as long as his blood is out there, there is a chance for them to be made a new creation. And so he says, hold off on your judgment and follow my example. So what happens when this takes place? It's a strange verse, probably the strangest verse in the passage. It comes in verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, when I heard this verse as a kid, I had no idea what it meant. And I thought it meant something like, okay, fine. If I see a guy stealing and I don't let it bother me, when I go into heaven, Jesus is going to go, okay, so you didn't, you know, judge that person who stole. So those times you stole, I'm not going to count it. Okay, this guy lied. Lying doesn't bother you. Every time you lied, I'm not going to count it. But traffic, you were not good in traffic. You condemned people, you yelled at people, and you yelled at them for doing the exact same things you did. So let's take out the list, see every time he did this, and judge you from there. I don't think that's exactly what he's saying. Maybe it works sociologically. If you judge people around you, you end up only surrounding yourself with people who think like you. They have the same judgment as you. They have the same standards as you. And one day they'll turn those same standards against you. And that standard that you use to judge other people will end up being used against you. 
But again, I don't think that captures the full picture of what he's trying to say. The key to what he's trying to say comes in the first half of the verse, which is the most confusing. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. What is he talking about? This is an image taken from the ancient marketplace. And the way that you conducted trade in this marketplace is through trade. You take a measuring cup and say, this is going to cost you one cup of flour. You'd have to pour out flour and that would be your payment. But sometimes you get cheapos who pour it out. It's not quite full. But he's saying, no, this is like a guy who tap, tap, taps it and makes sure it's full. It's like uh, going to Chipotle. You know, we all know that no burritos are created equal. You look in the line, see who's behind the counter, and then you see what they're doing. You go, I want that guy to make my burrito. Why? Because he doesn't just put a half a spoonful of rice. He puts a half a spoonful and a half. He doesn't just give you one pinch of meat. He gives you one and a half pinches of meat. And when you get that burrito, it's really like three burritos. And you go, yes, this is the best feeling because I prayed the same as this guy over here, but I got an overflowing amount of burrito. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. If you do not judge, he will give you an overflowing burrito of grace and mercy and those kind of things. He's saying, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. I'm going to pack this burrito tight and give you something more powerful and great than you could ever imagine. When we refuse to judge the people around us, we can be more open to the type of blessing that God has in store for us. And this makes sense. If we walk around life thinking God can only love people like me, but not people like them, then our vision of God is amputated. He can only do so much. When we stop judging people and we go, you know what, even this person who bothers me to no end, even this person who I deem dangerous and because of the way that they're acting, even that person God has enough mercy and grace and power for then we open our own hearts up to the possibility that God can have that same power in our own life. When we are open to others in a strange way, we become open to God in a new and powerful way. And that leads us to the main point of what we're talking about. It's not about don't do this and don't do that. It's about having a posture of openness to one another, having a posture of openness to other people. It's not enough to be a disciple of Jesus by following every single rule that he says to follow. We are not called to be disciples in that way. We're called to be disciples together, in our life together, in the way that we share together, in the way that we experience things together. This is implied in the command, do not judge. Every negative commandment has a positive side. Do not steal means to be generous. Do not murder means value human life. Do not commit adultery means faithful to your relationships. And do not judge means be open to all kinds of people. And we know that this is the case because the author of this gospel is Luke, who also wrote Acts. And Acts tells a story about how the gospel spread, not just from the Jews, but to cover the entire world. How did that happen? Throughout the gospel, Luke drops in a bunch of hints, and this is one of those hints. It happened because the gospel was entrusted to people who were told, do not judge who gets to come into this train. Keep the door open and let in as many people as you can. We can only really be disciples when we're open to other people. It's a, it's a game that's meant to be played together. Um, I think like a lot of us, um, I, went, I went through, I'm going through a midlife crisis. And it's pretty like menial. But um, it ended up manifesting in like me doing all the stuff that I wish I had done when I was 12. So we were at Target. I saw a skateboard. It was 40 bucks. I bought a skateboard <laughs> and started practicing in my mom's garage. One of the things that I was always too embarrassed to do was um, play basketball. So I started watching all these YouTube clips and working on my handles, working on my shot. 
And right at Arlo's birthday, I was playing basketball with my ninth graders. I'm 17 feet away from the basket. I go up for a jumper. This bear of a ninth grader who doesn't understand the game sees me go up, sticks his leg out. I fall on it, crack my ankle, and my ankle is broke. Shot went in, by the way, so it's an and one for me. <laughs> so I made this shot. I break my ankle. Jen's at home, busily preparing for Arlo's birthday. I tell her what happened, and she says, you are never playing basketball <laughs> with anyone ever again. What can I do? I love the game. So as soon as my ankle is healed, I go out to the courts in my neighborhood. I start shooting around. And the whole time I'm shooting around, I have her voice in my head. You are never playing basketball <laughs> with anyone ever again. You are never playing basketball with anyone ever again. And over the course of an hour, inevitably, somebody comes out to me and says, hey, you want to play? And they don't know about this promise I made, so I go, oh, no, 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 I can't play. I'm like, what is with this guy? I think a lot of us, um, over the last couple of years, have looked at our life in that way. Christianity is a solo thing. It's something we do with our family. It's something we do with our pod. And, of course, it was necessary given what was going on in the world. But if we keep going down that path, it's like me shooting hoops by myself while other people are enjoying a game somewhere else. Basketball is meant to be played with other people. Don't worry. I'm not going to play. But I'm just saying, for the sake of illustration, you can really only see what the game is when there's other people playing. And the church is the exact same way. We can't just be like, all right, I got my life in order. I know what I'm doing. I don't care about anybody else. We can only really be as disciples when we're disciples together, when we're open to other people in this church and outside of this church. Let's pray. I mean, why don't we just take a moment and reflect? Um, I imagine for all of us, our circles over the last couple of years have gotten a lot smaller. Friends we haven't seen in a while, relatives we haven't seen in a while. And part of that was needed because of the type of thing that we were going through with the pandemic. But listen to these words, judge not, condemn not, forgive and give. God is telling us to be open to people again, to be open to people in the church, to be open to people outside of the church. I'm sure that as you start reflecting on this message, certain faces are going to pop up. This is a person you should be open to. This is a person you should be speaking with. This is a person you should email and say, hey, how are you doing? God is telling us not to judge. Even people that have wronged you, forgive them and be open to them. So why don't we think and pray like this for a little bit, and then we'll sing some songs to reflect. <laughs>